Well, our passage this morning is from the book of Hosea. So if you have your copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, turn over to Hosea chapter 1, where we are going to be spending the bulk of our time this morning. Now, if you're anything like me, it has been a year. And everyone can say it has just been a hard year. It's been a long year. It's been one of us that none of us could really have ever expected when we came into it. I'm sure many of you were like me in January and you thought, it's going to be a good year. It's going to be a good year. I'm going to go on a diet, which that didn't happen. I'm going to get healthier. I'm going to get a better job. Maybe something like that. There's all sorts of different things that we said, this is going to be the year. Maybe we thought we were going to have new adventures, new joys that last year didn't have. Or we were going to build off of a life we were already accustomed to. And then 2020 happened. And it didn't happen all at once, but it slowly escalated. It started to slowly change, just like the virus that has essentially flipped this year upside down. What started out slow gradually went downhill until it began to move at an exponential rate. And it felt like it would never stop. Now here we are at the end of the year. Next Sunday will be the first Sunday of December. We are at the end of the year, and nothing has really gotten much better. We are seeing people get sick. We are seeing people contract this terrible virus that is leaving so many lasting effects. Many of you have gone through the sting of loss of loved ones or of coworkers. You have gone through many other difficulties like loss of finances, and the list goes on and on. 2020 has been a year, and it can only be described with every changing moment as so 2020. For me, this has been a year as well. It's been a hard year. There has been a lot of things. I have dealt with exhaustion, sadness, moments of loneliness, bouts with depression. I've had to take on greater loads at work than I anticipated. I've had so many things that I loved or loved to do just taken from me. And I have worked my point several times to the point of being physically ill. But through everything that this year has thrown at us, and we have all felt this, through everything it has thrown at us, I know one thing to be true. God is faithful. God is faithful. He is also good. And he has redeemed all things to himself through the blood of his son. And even in the midst of a terrible year such as 2020, we have seen this to be the case. God is faithful. The passage we are in this morning is Hosea 1. And it is a testament to this truth that God is faithful. It tells a beautiful story of faithfulness and unmerited redemption. Not only between a man and his wife, but between God and his people. So look with me at Hosea chapter 1 starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and he took Gomer the daughter of Deblame, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, 
And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name, no mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah. And I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that you have given us to look into your word. Lord, we thank you for this, the first Sunday of Advent, where we celebrate the arrival of Christ. Lord, we thank you that Christ came to ransom sinners. And as we look at this passage this morning, I I hope that you would give us eyes to see the beautiful truth of your word, that redemption is found in you and you alone. Lord, would you stir our affections for you and show us how even the idolatrous people such as Israel and us, you loved and you ransomed. Be with us this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our passage this morning is one of the more scandalous chapters in all of the Bible. You see that with the language of verses 2 through 3. It is a scandalous chapter, and honestly, it's a scandalous book in general. And as we look into this section of text, I want you to see that there are two stories interwoven together. The first story is the story of Hosea and Gomer. The second story is the story of God and his people, and they are connected throughout not only the first chapter, but the entire book of Hosea. They are building off of one another. In the opening verse, the reader is told about the nature of this writing, the time period, and one of the main characters. It begins in verse 1 with the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Biri. Being good students of the Bible, we know where the book of Hosea falls. It is a book of the minor prophets, and it's not so named because of its insignificance. Rather, it is named because of the size in comparison to other prophetic books like the book of Isaiah, which is massive in comparison. Even though this book is small compared to other books that are in the Old Testament and in the Bible, it is jam-packed with beautiful truths, with beautiful themes, rich doctrine and theology, and it reveals, as we will see, a great deal about the nature of God and man. Now, we are given a clue to the time of this writing by the list of rulers that are found in the first verse. It's clear that this writing comes after the divide of the nation of Israel. Israel has divided into the northern and the southern kingdoms, Israel and Judah, And it was caused by a whole host of issues that we'll discuss in a little bit greater detail in a minute. But those issues included lawlessness, war, greed, idolatry, covenantal infidelity, corrupt rulers, and the list goes on and on. The kingdom is divided and swiftly moving towards complete ruin, complete annihilation. They have gone far away from where God has called them to be. Finally, we are introduced to one of our main characters, Hosea. Now, not much is known about Hosea based on what we see in the opening verses. He doesn't give us a lot of information about who he is. We know that he is a prophet of the Lord because the Lord is giving him a message to speak to Israel. So he is a prophet of the Lord. He is the son of Biri, who we know little to nothing about. 
And he is faithful to God. He is faithful to God, and that will be one of the more important themes throughout this passage. But before we dive deeply into this hard and beautiful passage, I want to stress something that often gets overlooked by modern readers, something that we don't actually think about when we're reading the Old Testament. I mean, we are thousands of years removed from this when this was written. Right? This is a long time ago that it was written, and we sometimes just approach this as a story. It's a great story. It was something that teaches us something about God. But I think it's important for us to emphasize that this is a real story. This is real. This is true. It actually happened. This wasn't just created as an allegorical picture of God and his people. It's real. Hosea is real. His wife, Gomer, is real. And the pain and brokenness that we will quickly see is real. As one commentator explained, the story is not an illustration gleaned from human experience and then applied as a spiritual message. But it's an actual personal history plotted by Yahweh in which Hosea executes at exquisite personal cost God's holy purposes. This is a real story. It's based on a true story. It brought a lot of pain, a lot of cost. And we need to put ourselves in the position of seeing the emotion and the pain within it. Hosea's obedience and faithfulness to the Lord was displayed at a great cost, and it caused him a vast amount of grief. But it allows us to see on a very small scale the pain that God felt as his people had abandoned him, had rejected him, and they broke the covenant that he made with them. Now, with regards to the structure of what we're going to be looking at this morning, I've broken our passage down into four sections that will follow the flow of the story. So four sections that lead to the ultimate climactic moment that we will soon see. Number one, we see an unexpected marriage to an unworthy bride. An unexpected marriage to an unworthy bride. So our story, the narrative begins in verse 2. And it reads, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, he said to Hosea, Go and take yourself a wife of whoredom, or as I will translate it, harlotry, and have children of harlotry. For the land commits great harlotry by forsaking the Lord. The book of Hosea has some of the strongest language in all of the Bible. We see that with the first few words here. It is strong language. It is an indictment. And God does not mince his words when he is dealing with his idolatrous, wicked people. He is going to call them out for who they are and for what they have become. Now, a great number of you, and we are smaller than what I anticipated this morning, but still the majority of you this morning are married or have been married. And as you were, so if you put yourself in your shoes before you were married, or if you were looking towards marriage, you probably have some sort of list of criteria that you were looking for in a spouse. Some sort of set of things that you wanted in someone that you wanted to marry. So maybe the person was taller or shorter, had dark hair, had lighter hair, loved the Lord, loved to serve had a really nice job. The list goes on and on. You had this list of criteria that you wanted in a spouse. Hosea was a real person. And likely when he was growing up, he might have thought some of these same things. But when God spoke to him, he gave him a command to marry someone with an attribute that would not have been on that list. If he looked at his top ten of things that he wanted, this attribute would not have been on his list of criteria. And that was adultery. We can imagine Hosea being thrown off by this command. Did he mishear the Lord? Did did God really say that? Was he really to marry a harlot? 
This command was likely extremely difficult for him to swallow. Now, there is a great deal of speculation surrounding the nature of Gomer, whether she was already playing the role of the harlot or if this was something that she would one day do, a future-looking harlotry. But I'm convinced that the command to marry a harlot was a future-looking command, that she wasn't already playing that position, but would soon one day become the adulterer. She would soon one day commit great adultery against her husband. And in my understanding of this, he didn't take a wife who was already an adulterer, but one that would soon become one. And I think it makes the most sense of what we will later see in the passage, and it better fits the relationship between God and Israel. But what was the reason behind this command to marry? Why did God give Hosea this command to marry this woman? Being given this command would not have been an easy pill to swallow. And you can almost imagine Hosea mentally asking the question of why? Why her? Why this? Why do I have to go through this? So the Lord answers his why with this reason. It is to picture. It is to picture what my people have done. They have played the harlot, and they have forsaken the one whom they have loved the most, who has loved them the most, excuse me, that is God. Intertwined in this passage are literal acts and religious acts that help the reader better understand the events as they unfold. And as one author put it, the literal harlotry of Gomer is a persistent illustration of Israel's religious fornication. So the literal act of Gomer is an illustration of what Israel has become. They have played the role of the harlot. Israel was God's people. In Genesis 15 through 17, God established a covenant with Abraham to make him a great nation, to be a blessing to the world, and then later makes a covenant with Israel at Sinai in Exodus when God explained that if they kept his law, he would be their God and they would be his people. Now, this is furthered in this passage by the reference to the land. So as we read it again, go and take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. This reference to the land was a call back to the covenant that God had made with Abraham, the covenant in Exodus and the conquest and settlement of the land of promise. This statement would have played at the conscience of the Israelite listeners and would serve as a reminder to them that the land was a good gift from God. It was a good gift from God. It was a celebration of God's covenant with them. And the land was to be kept based upon based upon their complete obedience to Him. But now, instead of being obedient, instead of remembering the promises of the Lord, The land and the people within it has plunged itself into spiritual idolatry, spiritual fornication. The message is clear. Israel has played the harlot. How? By rejecting God and choosing instead to worship false idols. At this time, Israel was entrenched in worship of the Baals and cultic practice. And God called his people, if you remember, God called his people to be a holy nation, to be set apart from the rest of the world. They were to image God and his glory to everyone else. And what was established to be a holy, set apart nation now looked like the rest of the world. And in most ways, looked worse than the rest of the world. They were to be holy and they became unholy. They were to image God, and they shamed the name of the Lord. 
Hosea was given this message as a prophet of the Lord. But instead of simply giving Hosea the message to go and speak, instead of saying, Hosea, this is my message for you, go tell Israel, God tells him, you're going to live it out. This is going to be your life. You're going to see what I have gone through with Israel. So Hosea does. And you have to imagine that this took some time to think through. You don't just get this command and say, all right, I'm going. This had to take some thought. He had to consider the cost of what it meant. And yet, he was obedient to the Lord. He was faithful to the Lord. He steps out in faith and loves a woman who he knows that one day will trample on his love and cast him aside, just as Israel had done God. But this was only the beginning of God's message to them. Now that he had condemned them for their spiritual fornication, he then pronounces judgment on them through the naming of Hosea's children. So the second section we see in our passage this morning is a pronouncement of judgment through the naming of Hosea's children. The command to marry a woman that would commit adultery against you is incredibly difficult. It was incredibly hard. Essentially, Hosea was setting himself up for heartbreak. He knew what was going to happen. But out of faithfulness to the Lord, he did so. Unfortunately for him, the story only continues to get worse. Now that he has married a woman he knows will break his heart, he is now going to have children that are going to have some of the worst names in the Bible. One of the many questions brought up by commentators regarding the origin, this passage is the origin of the children. Were they Hosea's children or were they from another man? And honestly, the relatively vague language of the passage kind of leaves it up to speculation. It doesn't really make it clear the answer to that question. But what is clear is that these children were given very important names. And these important names serve as an indictment on the people of Israel. Now, I asked you earlier about your list of things that you were thinking through when you were married. Now, fast forward to when you were thinking of having kids. You find out you are pregnant, you are going to have your first child or your second child, or so on and so forth. And as you are thinking through what it's going to be like to be a parent, you think through the name. You think through a list of names that you want to name your child. The husband has one list, the wife has another list, and then you just start to argue until you come up with one that you agree on, or somewhat agree on. All right? Hosea and Gomer did not get that option. They did not go through the naming process as we know it. And I can almost guarantee that the names Jezreel, No Mercy, and Not My People were not on their top ten list of things they wanted to name their kids. This was not something that they had imagined. And just fast forward for a second. Imagine being No Mercy. Now obviously it's a Hebrew name, but your name means No Mercy. So when you get in trouble with your parents, you already know you're in for it. Because your name is No Mercy. It was a terrible, terrible name. But Very significant names. Very important names. It pronounced judgment on a wicked and idolatrous people. So the first child. The first child is a son, and he is given the name Jezreel. And in each instance that the Lord gives a name, he gave a reason, an important message of judgment for Israel that Hosea was going to take to them. Now Jezreel is so named, as verses 4 to 5 explain, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Israel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So here are two things that I think we must see in order to better understand the judgment that is pronounced on Israel. First, God is condemning Israel's reliance on warfare to deliver them from the hand 
of their enemies and to allow them to hold on to the meager power that they already had. This naming is a reference to what we see occur in 2 Kings, where Jehu takes control of the throne of Israel by great bloodshed, by great warfare in the valley of Jezreel. And even though at the time it was blessed by Elisha, the problem with Jehu we see is that he and his descendants were obsessed with war. They were obsessed with their own military power. They wanted control, and so they took it at great cost. They had a zeal for bloodshed. Their ambitions, their desires for power usurped the authority of God. And at the time, Israel was already entrenched in idol worship. And Jehu and his descendants did absolutely nothing to bring Israel back. They did nothing to bring Israel back to proper worship of God. The second thing that we see here from the naming of Jezreel, within the meaning of the actual name Jezreel, is the idea that God will scatter As this pronouncement of judgment is being handed down, God is telling them that they are about to be sent out from the land into exile. Soon they will be scattered by foreign powers who would come to conquer them. They would be removed from the land. The naming of the first child is significant. Israel will be judged for their reliance on their military powers instead of their reliance on the Lord. Soon they will be scattered into exile. And on that day, their military might will do nothing to save them. They have abandoned God and have relied on their own strength. And soon that strength will be shown as complete weakness. The second child, no mercy. The naming of the second child is way harsher than the first. It is harsher than the first. This time, Gomer conceives and gives birth to a daughter. And again, another awful name is given. No mercy. And this name is all the more terrifying because it doesn't need an explanation like Jezreel does. No mercy. You can imagine the panic that would have likely ensued in the hearing of the naming of this child. Israel had grown accustomed to the mercy of God. They had gotten used to it and they relied on it. Throughout their history, they knew that what they had done was stupid and despicable. And their stupid and despicable acts got them in a whole host of trouble. But what they also knew was that God had showed them mercy time and time again. So they took advantage of the mercy of God. They knew that God would show them mercy, so they took advantage of it. In Exodus, God showed them mercy by delivering them out of the hand of the Egyptians. He parted the Red Sea for them and led them by a pillar of fire and a cloud of smoke. At Sinai, God showed them mercy by not wiping them off the face of the planet for committing idolatry. In the wilderness, God showed them mercy by providing them manna from heaven when they complained about their circumstances. God showed them mercy by allowing them to conquer the land and enter the promised land, even though they did not trust that God could do it. Now that they had plunged themselves into idol worship and religious fornication, they likely still believed that they were within the mercy of God. They had seen it time and time again. Surely he'll show it again. We'll take advantage of it again. Surely he would show his mercy. Mercy was now gone from the house of Israel. No more would God show them mercy for what they had done. Mercy was removed and judgment had arrived. For Judah, though, a different story was told. Mercy was going to continue to be shown towards them. Judah had not plunged themselves deeply into religious idolatry, religious harlotry like Israel had. So God would show them mercy. 
They were not as wicked as Israel, so God would show them mercy. But this only lasted for a short season. It was a short time. Soon Judah followed the example of Israel, and they slid down the slope of sin and corruption and ultimately led to their being conquered as well. Mercy had been removed, and the question we have to ask after the naming of this second child is, can it get any worse? Judgment is coming. Mercy has been removed. Can it get any worse? And the answer to that question is simply yes. It can get worse. The third child is named. After Gomer had weaned her second child, she conceived and bore another son. And his name was the worst of them all, and it builds off the previous two names. Because of Israel's reliance on their military power, because of their reliance on their own strength, and their religious harlotry, they were going to be conquered and scattered as seeming in the naming of Jezreel. Then the mercy of the Lord was removed from that people that had taken advantage of the Lord's mercy. But the final knockout blow is seen in this last child. Not my people. Let that settle for a moment. God has said to them, judgment is coming. And my mercy is being removed from you. But they still clung to the thought that they were His people. Surely they had not messed up bad enough that they had lost the title of God's people. Not my people. What was God's promise to Israel and His message to Moses? I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. But the stipulation of the Mosaic Covenant is that if you obey my commands and you keep my statutes, I will be your God and you will be my people. But Israel did not keep the covenant. They did not keep the promises that they made to God. And as one commentator describes, the waywardness of the nation has effectively annulled the covenant. The son's name not only described how Israel had behaved as if they did not belong to Yahweh, but also declared... God's response was separating himself from them. Israel had gone too far. They had pushed it too far. And they had broke the promises that they had made to God. The terrifying nature of this moment is seen if you actually literally render this verse for what it means. It reads, I am not I am to you. I am not I am to you. For Bible readers that know the book of Exodus, this should spark something. We should be thinking back to God's promises to Israel and how he spoke with Moses. When Moses asked God at the burning bush, who am I to say that has sent me? When he was going to Pharaoh, who am I to say that has sent me? God looks at him and says, say that I am has sent you. The I amness of the Lord has now been removed. Judgment has been pronounced. And God is saying, I am not I am to you. I am no longer I am to you. I am not I am. They had gone way too far. Their religious fornication had pushed them over the edge. Judgment was coming. Mercy had been removed. And they were no longer His people. Not my people. I think the question we have to ask as we approach this particular naming is, had God changed? Did God change here? And I think it's an important question to ask as we ponder the significance of these verses. Did God change? The short answer is no. God had not changed. He is eternally unchangeable. 
But his people had changed. His people had changed. It was his people that had changed, not God. It was their changing into idolatry that had brought about the judgment. They had removed themselves from the mercy of Yahweh. And they had annulled their side of the covenant. God had not changed. They had changed. At this point, you can imagine the people of Israel had their heads hung low. They knew what they had done. They finally understood. They had pushed their sins too far. They had abandoned God. They had removed themselves from His mercy. They were no longer His people. Judgment was pronounced. But the question we have to ask is, was God done? Simply put, no, He was not done. The third section of our passage is the promise to restore a broken relationship. The relationship has been severed at this point between God and Israel. Their sins had pushed them over the edge. They had gone too far. They were no longer His people. They had brought themselves out of His mercy, but the story doesn't end. It continues to go. At this point in the prophetic message, the nation of Israel would have been literally shaking in their boots. They had gone too far. They had lost access to God's mercy, to His very I amness. They had every reason to have zero hope. Their unfaithfulness, it was them that had led them to this moment. Their unfaithfulness had done this. It's at this point in the passage that the direction changes. The direction has changed from a pronouncement of judgment to a promise of restoration. The voice shifts from the voice of the Lord to an oracle of Hosea. And starting in verse 10, he calls back to God's original covenant. Look at verse 10 with me. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they will go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Israel. And then two one, say to your brothers, you are my people. To your sisters, you have received mercy. So starting in verse 10, God calls, excuse me, Hosea calls back to God's covenant with Abraham that he guaranteed by his own name. God has not forgotten the promises that he made to them. God has not forgotten. His promises are still true. The promises of blessing to Abraham will not be cut off. To the people that God had called not my people, they will one day be called children of the living God. And this language shift would have been a miraculous thing to them. They had just heard everything that had just gone on. All of the judgment that was coming to them, and yet God is saying, you will be children of the living God. For Paul in Romans 9, this is a kingdom expansion. This is an expansion going out from the Jews to the Gentiles. The kingdom of salvation. Salvation is at hand and it is coming to both the Jews and the Gentiles as Paul understood. Essentially saying redemption was soon to be offered. Hosea is speaking of a coming redemption. Now why does he say of the living God? Why doesn't he just say that you will again be called my people? I think there's two reasons. One, it shows who will be enacting this miraculous kingdom expansion. God will. It will not be done by Israel's power or their own strength. It will be done by God. The second thing that it shows is a defeat of the false idols. 
Israel had plunged themselves into worshiping false idols. But what God is saying is, I am alive. I am the living God. I will overthrow them all. I will establish my kingdom. And I will show you just how foolish you have been. Soon, as this passage shows, he will rejoin a divided nation. Remember that the nation has been divided into the northern and the southern kingdoms. He's going to rejoin them. God had promised to David that his people would be united under one head, one ruler. But the nation had chosen chaos. They divided themselves, choosing instead to establish their own wicked rulers. God was going to miraculously rejoin a people that had divided themselves. And they would once again be his people. They will again be his people and they will again receive his mercy. And God reverses the judgment of the preceding verses. And in turn, instead of pronouncing judgment, pronounces restoration. What was once scattered will be harvested. Now Israel was going to be punished. Don't get it wrong. Israel was going to be punished. Soon they would be conquered and overthrown by the Assyrians and taken into exile. They would receive the judgment that God had promised to them. They would be removed for his mercy from a time. They had broken their covenant with God. But there was hope. There was hope. There was a longed for and greatly anticipated day when they would be restored. Redemption was made possible. Judgment was pronounced, but redemption was made possible. Hosea was commissioned to live out unspeakable pain. The theme of his family story being intertwined with the relationship of God and Israel continued in chapter 2. It only gets worse. It only escalates. What unfolds in the second chapter is completely gut-wrenching. It is hard for us to look at. Though Israel had received the message of hope, they continued in their wickedness. God had pronounced judgment to them. He had said, these things are going to happen because of what you have done. But there is hope. And yet they continued in their idolatry. They continued to plunge deeper and deeper into their own filth and sin. And for Hosea, who is modeling the relationship between God and Israel, his wife leaves him. Israel's religious harlotry is seen in the actions of Gomer. In chapter 2, Gomer leaves her husband and does what he knew would happen from the start. She becomes an adulterer. She abandons the one who had cared for her, the one who had comforted her, the one who had provided her and exchanges it all for momentary pleasure. Gomer and Israel had become unfaithful. They had abandoned the ones who had loved them and in turn played the harlot. Now, if I wanted to, I could have ended our time this morning a little bit earlier and ended it with the promises of hope and restoration, but I don't believe that that is the end of the story. There is more. The fourth and final thing that we see this morning is unmerited redemption. In Hosea 3, something profoundly beautiful occurs. Look over at Hosea 3 with me, starting in verse 1. And the Lord said to me, Go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or be long to another man. So will I also be to you. 
For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or house gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. What we see occur here is unmerited redemption. Gomer has left her husband. She has become an adulterer. And if he wanted to, he could have looked at her and said, I'm done. He could have left her there. He could have abandoned her. But Hosea does not do that. He does not leave her there. Even though he had every right to no longer love her, he doesn't do that. God tells Hosea to go and find his wife. So he does. And he likely went to a place that prophets of the Lord were not seen typically. Because what we see play out here is essentially she has sold herself into prostitution. So he goes and finds his wife who has become the adulterer. And once he has found his wife who has sold herself, he purchases her at an incredibly high cost. He buys her back. He doesn't just come and take his wife back. He purchases her. He buys her back. When Jesus came into his creation, he came with a purpose. He came with a purpose to purchase a people for himself. So Jesus came into his creation. He walked among his people and he lived without sin and made a people that were called not my people, his people by purchasing them. Now, when one wants to purchase someone, something, they know the exchange rate. They know how much it costs. So when they go into the store to purchase it, they know how much they are going to pay. For Gomer, the price was high. It's going to be a lot to buy her back. Hosea had to give up a great deal of money and material possession to get his wife back. But there was no cost too high for him. No cost too high. It didn't matter how much it took, whether it was money, material possessions, he was willing to give everything he had to purchase his wife back. No cost too high. Why? Because he deeply loved her. He longed for his bride. And so he paid the price in full. He gave as much as he could for her. And this is where the story gets beautiful. Jesus didn't come to purchase a people with money. He didn't come to purchase his people with grain, nor any other goods or material possession that he could offer. The cost was high for us. Israel had plunged themselves into sin. We have plunged ourselves into sin. And the penalty for our sin is death. The cost is high. But there was no price too high that Jesus was not willing to pay. He was willing to pay everything that he had. No price too high. He wanted the people for himself. So Jesus purchased his bride just as Hosea purchased his bride at an incredibly high cost. But that cost was even higher for Jesus. He paid his own life. He knew he would have to lay down his life to ransom sinners to himself. So he did so without hesitation. He wanted us, so he paid the price. He stood where we stood. We should have been there. But he did so willingly for an unlovely bride. It wasn't our beauty that caused him to do this. 
It wasn't something that we had done to merit it. Nothing we had done had earned his love, his compassion. But he did so out of the abundance of his love. The cost was high, but Jesus paid it in full. And the exchange rate has not changed. What was enough then did not become insufficient today. The payment of his own life was enough then as it is now. Jesus paid the full price to atone for our sins. And as the Christian artist propaganda wrote, his righteousness, his death, functions as payment. Yes, payment. He wrote a check with his life, but at the resurrection, we all cheered because that means the check cleared. The payment for our sins was paid in full. It was paid in full, and it was completely sufficient. No more payments had to be made. We didn't have to stack our good works along with the blood of Christ to fully pay for our sins. His blood was enough. He paid the full price. This is the story of redemption. Hosea loved his bride. She did not earn that love. She did not merit that love. But he willingly gave everything he could for her. Jesus loved his people. He loves his people. And so he gave everything he had for us. And as our pastor explains in his book, 40 Questions About Typology and Allegory. This is a little bit longer quote, but I think it's important. Hosea's wife, Gomer, was an unfaithful woman. And her actions led to a situation where she needed to be redeemed. So Hosea bought his wife, which means he paid the price for her redemption. And he brought her home to dwell with him. Within the book of Hosea itself, the marriage and redemption of Gomer, the marriage and redemption of Gomer pointed beyond her and her husband. The actions of Hosea represented God's heart towards his people. God was in covenant with Israel and he would pursue them even though they were unfaithful. Though they went after other lovers, God would redeem them. And this is where it really gets good. The marriage and redemption of Gomer foreshadows the mercy shown to sinners through the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus was our redeemer. He established a new covenant for rebels and lawmakers. His kindness leads us to repentance. And we unfaithful people are brought into his family and into right standing with God that we do not deserve. The beautiful picture of Hosea's love escalates the good news of the gospel. Hosea's love for Gomer advances the good news of the gospel. We are Gomer. Christ is Hosea. And he redeems us out of our spiritual debts and slavery. Friends, the story of Hosea and Gomer, it's our story. It is our story. Only we aren't the ones being elevated as faithful. We're not Hosea in this story. We aren't being elevated as faithful. God is. He showed his faithfulness in sending Christ Jesus to purchase us for himself. The cost was high. Jesus was willing to pay it. The message of the book of Hosea is a message that we need today. Redemption is found not in the merit of the guilty, not in the merit of the accused, but in the overwhelming love and faithfulness of the Redeemer. So the question we have to ask this morning is, what do we do with this story? And my answer is simple. We run to the feet of Jesus, overwhelmed by the depths of His grace.
we are overwhelmed at the cost that he paid. There was no cost too high that he wasn't willing to pay. He paid it all. He paid it in full, and he redeemed his bride for himself out of his abundance of love and his abundance of mercy. Stand with me as we close in prayer.